Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. The radio and TV version of the show air in over 12 states. This includes both coasts and Silicon Valley. The show also airs in the UK, Caribbean, and Australia. For full show times, plus past episodes of the TV and radio show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. We just launched a free online community to connect past guests, listeners, and others. This community will allow you to network, chat on Slack, or get help with anything else, and a lot more. If you're interested in joining the community, buying some merch, sponsoring the show, or signing up for the newsletter, please go to buildingthefutureshow.com. The show is a proud media partner for the 11th Annual Media Excellence Awards, which are produced by Access Entertainment in Los Angeles, California. The Media Excellence Awards are recognized as the most influential awards show, honoring innovation and leadership in all things mobile entertainment, lifestyle, and technology. For more information on how to submit to these awards, please visit MediaXAwards.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Brian Tuck. He's an attorney, author, and musician. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I, I think, um, obviously, what you've written about is is very relevant to the audience. Um, being an attorney, I think, no matter where you kind of go in life, understanding kind of the law is always beneficial, especially in um, kind of the startup entrepreneurial equals, ecosystem. <laughs> and, uh, you know, obviously, I think also I, I've known a, a lot of people that seem to be in the, the space that are either were musicians, are musicians, want to be kind of musicians. So it, it's interesting to me that you kind of have three of the things that I think a lot of people in, in the space, you know, have or, or want to be have. But maybe before we get into all that fun stuff, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sure. Uh, I, I grew up in the suburbs around Philadelphia, so okay. uh, Bucks County, which is um, you know bordered by the Delaware River on the east, and then New Jersey's right on the other side. Okay. Uh, about I'd say about thirty minutes uh, thirty minutes north of Philadelphia. Okay. Very cool. So you went to university. What did you take, and why? I went to a state school in Pennsylvania called Westchester University. Okay. Which is really a which is really a teachers college. A lot of the um, a lot of public uh, high school and elementary ed teachers in this region went to, went through that program. And initially, that's what I was going to be. I was going to be a music teacher. Oh, interesting. And I was a music I was I was a music ed major for a couple of years, and wasn't you know midstream i wasn't a hundred percent you know committed to that career path and decided to change my major to business management and um and finished out that way okay and then walk me through kind of why you decided to go into law well i love a challenge okay and um really i it you know i had worked in an insurance company, you know, it was the classic Mike Judge office space <laughs> environment with the great cubicles and the big open space and really a lot of people avoiding, you know, working. Okay. I, what that, I, I won't name the company, but it's a, sure. it is one that everybody in the United States has heard of. Okay. Um, and, I mean, that movie is so true to life. It is startling, but that's a story for another time, probably. Sure. So I, I did that for a couple of years post-grad, and then a friend of mine, uh, I noticed on her desk she had a prep book for the LSATs, for the law school uh, admissions test. Okay. And I started leafing through it, and I, it, for some reason, uh, I tend to be good at taking standardized tests. I don't know why. Okay, interesting. That is, some people can run a five-minute mile. I can run maybe a fifteen-minute mile because I'm a mess. But um, the but standardized tests, I can for some reason I'm just wired that way. Okay. So I I started looking through the book and it just got my wheels turning because I had never even conceived of uh, 
going into law. My my father was an attorney. Okay. And he worked for he worked for the uh, U.S. government uh, doing labor and employment law. Okay. And it really I don't think it was to follow in anyone's footsteps necessarily, but it just I was you know young and unattached and ready for a challenge, and one thing led to another, and I found myself at Temple University School of Law in Philly. Interesting. So maybe walk us through your career, maybe some career highlights, up until kind of the stuff you're doing now. Sure. Well, I practiced I practiced privately um, going into year 19 already, which is hard to believe. It does go by quickly. Sure. And I've always worked in, in suburban law uh, firms. So I've represented businesses in every industry, and um, sometimes it's employment law issues. Sometimes they are issues of capital formation and fundraising. Sure. So some securities, securities registrations and, and those kinds of things. And all the while, you know, I had this very, you know, at my core, I'm really an arts person. Sure. You know, and enjoy going to museums and concerts and performing and recording and helping other artists if they need, you know, another set of ears to listen to something or, you know, to, to weigh in on something. And that's really kind of who I am at my core. Sure. But in, but in the, you know, at least where, at least in my experience, and I, I, I have found that this is a common thing in the what I would call the white collar world. So if you work in finance or sure. law or accounting or something like that, where that is not always, or didn't used to be a trait that was valued. Okay. You, know, you kind of were looked at like you were a hippie or you were, you know, <laughs> you were not. Sure. Because you weren't working on, you know, you weren't working on your golf game or you weren't, uh, you know, doing whatever the ordained activities were of the white collar. Interesting. Sure. Um, I, I struggled against that a long time because I never, I, I mean, I never talked about, you know, if I was in a band at the time, I never talked about it at work. I never invited anybody to come see me play. I, you know, and, and this led to a, uh, a TEDx talk that I gave in 2014 about this, um, sort of br- having this breakthrough psychologically of, you know, all these expectations that get put on you sure. when you're young and starting out are really the expectations of others. Sure. And once you kind of, once you kind of own, this sounds very touchy feely, but I'll, I'll, I'll send you the link to the talk. It's, uh, sure. It's much more streamlined than what I'm about to say. But uh, once you start owning what you are at your core, mm-hmm. you become vastly more effective and opportunities start presenting themselves to you uh, whether you're ready for them or not. Yeah, that's a really and, good way to put it. Interesting. Keep going. Sorry. I, I mean, I... I not no, I mean not to sound too kind of like new agey uh, about it, but I think once you when you realize that your uniqueness is a strength and yeah. not a weakness, totally, it completely changes your worldview. And as a result of that, people become attracted to you. Maybe they want to work with you because you're. You know, maybe you're a great painter or you you do, you know, whatever, photography or something like that outside of the office. All of a sudden, people get curious about that. Sure. Once I delivered that TEDx talk, I was just in my circle, you know, in my sphere of influence, however small or big that might be. I started getting... um, just people would talk to me and these were like CPAs that I had known professionally for maybe five or 10 years. Sure. And they would go, Hey, you know, I was in a band when I was in college sure. and I still play. I still, have... and I never, 
never knew these things about these people, and it built like a real connection. That's great, so, man. It's not, you know, we would, you know, before the talk, the interaction would be something like you see them at a Chamber of Commerce event. Yeah, yeah. And you go, well, you know, boy, the president really knocked it out of the park on that speech last night or, or something like that, right? Sure. And some superficial exchange. And then you go, hey, call, you know, hey, call me if, uh, if anything, if I can be of service, you know, hey, call me. So that that was before. And then afterwards, uh, the interaction would be like, oh, I just bought this record. These guys really remind me of the Rolling Stones. You should check this out. And sure. then we would start exchanging, you know, bands we like or whatever. And then that would open the door to business. So it, it really, um, you know, up until I reached that point, and everybody reaches that point at different times, I think, um, you know, work was a struggle. I hated that. You know, Sunday would roll around, and, you know, you feel tense, you feel agitated, and your families, you know, your family members are like, oh, well, it's Sunday. You know, like people around you start realizing that there's workplace stress yeah, and it okay. bleeds over in your home and it bleeds over into your home life yep. and it affects those relationships. So I think, you know, being comfortable or, you know, not, not everybody could be totally happy and thrilled every day of their work life. Of sure. course, that's yep. not the way life is, but if you are comfortable with yourself in your, in your workplace, it is not as bad. And if you start and if you make the leap to start your own business, then it stops feeling like work all together. Interesting. And you find and you find yourself answering emails on Sunday and yeah. thinking about, okay, what do I what do I have to prep for? Where do I need to be? What you know, what and and then it's a totally different energy. It's a totally different animal. Sure. No, I, I agree. I, I want to step back for a second, though, because I think it's really important to cover. You're you're a drummer, correct? Yes. And so, how did you kind of get into playing drums growing up? Um, you know, that's a good question. I I, I was probably like ten years old. Okay. So, and whenever I would have pencils. Or rulers, like anything that was kind of like a drumstick in okay. my hands, sure. they were always moving. And um, you know how some people, this might be an odd analogy, but you know, the the relief that some people will tell you they feel when they smoke. Okay. You know, or yeah. or if they are smokers and have stopped and they need to, have, you know, they need to have something in their hand because it it uh, it, it relaxes them. Well, for me, the, like the the, the feeling of moving sticks against a practice pad or a drum has that effect. Sure. I'm not saying it's an addiction, but I just think uh, psychologically, I'm, again, probably the way I'm wired somehow. Yeah. Um, it just was a thing that was an outlet and was relaxing. So I would, you know, in the house I grew up in, when uh, my older uh, sisters and brother had moved out, you know, there was a room for a drum set. So when I was younger, I'd, I'd play along with records and I'd be up there. Um, you know, that was what I was doing. I was just, wasn't really deliberately practicing anything specific. I was just like, Oh, well, here's a song I like. And, and, you know, two hours later, uh, it's time, you know, it's time for dinner or, or, or whatever. So, um, but it's something I've always done, and uh, I could not stop now. I don't think if I wanted to. I have um, I have a group of about 14 musicians uh, wow. around me that we we play in different configurations That's depending awesome. on uh, depending on the job. So sometimes it's a trio, sometimes it's the full kind of like what we call the full metal jacket version of the band, which. Sure. Is That's a great. five a five piece a five piece horn section wow. and uh, four in the rhythm section and uh, scheduling and logistics are are uh, are a bear for sure but sure. Uh, but it's it's just it's great because you know I really believe in experience yeah. and what I mean by that is 
I can, when, you know, there's MP3s and, and music is very uh, available. It's, it's overly available on, on, on the computer and on your smartphones, but there is no substitute for going to hear a great totally. live band totally. and, and have those instruments move the air around yeah. you. Totally. Even if you and don't like the genre all, of music, I find it still can be like really great. Yeah. I've heard, I mean, I've heard, um, we've stopped calling ourselves jazz musicians because it's the smallest category of interest. It, you know, when, when you see these marketing surveys, it's like two and a half percent of the population likes that style. But I found that when we can get people in front of us and the bands, you know, in that zone where everybody's just on fire and everything's clicking and everybody's playing well, the, those people who didn't know or thought they didn't like it. Yeah. Love it. Sure. No, I 100% agree. Because I, it's a, go ahead. You sorry. know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, totally. I think part of the problem is, is like you get categorized a type of music and if you heard like one song one time in that category and that you associate kind of everything in that category with it but you're like there's so many different varieties of it and at the end of the day it's just kind of music you either love it or hate it and i think a lot of people like stuff in almost every category it's just they don't really even think about it right they just listen to it but i, I think go ahead sorry yeah i i, I think labels are are troublesome at times and I, I realize people need you know a way to process yeah it, sort of at a very um very you know general level am i likely to enjoy this or not you sure. know am i going to go listen to you know some swedish death metal band probably <laughs> not sure i'm glad i know that's what they call themselves sure but at the same time there's probably one or two that are doing that I might find really interesting. Yeah. And once I start going down into that material, um, it's a totally different thing than I expected. So sure. just, labels can be a double-edged sword. Totally. No, and I, I, why I bring it up is because I think like you've obviously, you're an accomplished kind of musician. You know, you run a kind of local jazz festival. You're also a member of kind of the Recording Academy or a voting member, I should say, mm -hmm. the Recording Academy, the Grammy. So obviously yep. like you know, what we're kind of about to talk about, I think is very kind of relevant to, you know, obviously from the legal side, from the creative side, um, makes a lot of sense. But you wrote a book, what's it called? And why did you write it? The book is called Risk, Create, Change, a survival guide for startups and creators. Okay. And the reason I wrote it was that I had, for a period of years, had several false starts with writing projects. Okay. Why and, was that? Uh, maybe just psychologically I wasn't ready, you okay. know, or, or time or, or energy, or I wasn't able to commit the amount of time that was required to, you know, to do it right. And... You know, while I, while that was happening, you know, in my practice, my law practice, which I started shifting after my TEDx talk, I really started shifting over to representing creators a lot more. Okay. So I was around more photographers. I was around more filmmakers. Interesting. Some theater companies, um, etc. And the I started seeing some common threads. Okay. Of, of you know, just common questions that, regardless of what uh, industry people were in, whether mm -hmm. they were creators or whether they were um, a small, you know, a, a small tech company that had, you know, an app or project that they needed capitalized, they all had sort of the basic same questions. So, in the in the first version of this book, and I'm, I already have a list of things I need to add for edition two, but. The, first, the, book, the edition of the book I put out is, are those sort of top eight or nine issues? Okay. 
and a, a chapter on each. So the book's really sort of made to be a desk reference. You can read it out of order. All the chapters are self-contained. So if you want to think about uh, what, you know, how should I organize my business? You know, something very basic that everybody thinks about at the beginning. Sure. There's a chapter on that. And okay. you can dive into that. And in 10 or 12 pages, it's not, you know, it's not meant to be an exhaustive, you know, a treatise on every arcane, you know, rule and case. What it's designed to do is for, for startups and small business people that only have 10 or 20 minutes to focus on something, gotcha. they can get in and out of that chapter and know what they need to know in order to spot issues. And I think from a small business perspective, the most dangerous place to be is not knowing what you don't know. Yeah. If you follow. Totally. I 100% agree so with you. If, so if you, if you, at least you have context for, Hey, I think I need to call an accountant about this. And I'm, I'm fairly sure there's something I have to do with the state. Let me call my attorney. Sure. Then you're in good shape because then you can connect with your professionals and, and get whatever it is addressed. So, so the entire book is not about law. It's really about sort of getting from zero from square one to viability. And I think, viability is you know the best goal you can help people achieve because once a business becomes viable then you can scale it sure but i think a lot of people fall into a trap where there you know there are a lot of people on youtube that are i don't want to say self-appointed experts but if you know a quick scan around social media and, and you will find lots of people telling you, well, you should do this or you should do that. And you can make seven figures. Yeah. I find, I find that a much more practical approach is beneficial. And one of the things I talk about with my startup clients is what do you need to live? Like sure. that's, you know, if you're in a, if you're in an accounting job, I don't know why I'm picking on accountants. Sorry guys. <laughs> If you're in an accounting job that you can't stand, that's causing distress, you know, like that Sunday night syndrome that we talked about, but you could build a viable business doing something that you're really, you know, really passionate about. Let's figure out a way to do that because it's with the, there are now more tools than ever to help small business people get, from that you know, zero to, to viability. And what I mean by that is there are, you know, bookkeeping services that you can book on an as you can hire on an as needed basis. There's legal help online. Um, you know, you don't need a private, you, know, you don't need a high cost attorney sure. for some things. And I, I routinely talk myself out of work because if I'm selling you something you don't really need, you're going to resent that. And I would not, and it's a breach of my duty to people. I just do that. So, so if there's something that, you know, they can do on their own, um, I'll say, you know, like they need a tax ID number or, or something like that. I'll say, here's the, here's the IRS website. It's meant for you to do yourself. You don't need me. I can do it. If you're too busy, I'll, I'll take it. Sure. But you give them the option at least, right? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Absolutely. I think that's important, but you know, people start looking at well, what do I need to live? Is it fifty thousand dollars a year? Is it seventy-five? Is it a hundred? Sure. And if you can figure that out and deal with driving down expenses, yep. You know, I would argue that that person, that hypothetical person we talked about, yeah, is better off mentally and psychologically and everything else. In a job at sixty grand a year, yeah. working for themselves, yeah. versus a hundred thousand a year, you know, working for the man, yeah. as it were. No, uh, it's, so it's good advice. I mean, I, I think that if there were more people that did that, we would all be better off. <laughs> you know? No, I understand. Agree. So, I, I think the interesting thing that um, I've been thinking a lot about lately is is almost to your point is 
so many people think that when they're building a startup that it needs to be this like million dollar, billion dollar kind of idea. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with making 50, 60, 100, 200 plus thousand dollars a year, even part time. Mm -hmm. If you made like an extra 30 grand a year part time and it took an extra maybe like five or 10 hours a week, why is that bad? That's a successful startup, right? Like, I don't understand why, totally. I, you, you know, like you're not a failure if you're making tens of thousands of dollars a year doing it part time. You're also not a failure if you're making 50 grand a year, you're happy and you're running your own business. Like, that's not bad. Don't, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I you know, I want people to prosper and if they sure. build a better mousetrap and can sell 20 million units of it, then God bless them. Like, that's sure. phenomenal. But I think, growing, you know, growing up in the 80s, I know I'm dating myself a little bit. <laughs> it's all good. Where, uh, where there was, or it seems to me in retrospect, there was a very strong focus on materialism. Totally. Starting, starting in that decade as a reaction, you know, to, you know, to the 60s and then 70s, there was an economic crisis in the U.S. And then... In the 80s, as as the U.S. came out of that uh, recession, everything, again, this is just my opinion, but it seems to me that materialism really took a front and center uh, space in people's minds. So they started to think, well, you know, if I can drive a, a BMW 3 Series, or if I can join a country club, or I can do these other things, then that means something Yep. in my travels with my legal clients that, you know, have gone through some serious family upheaval, whether it's divorce or sure. whatever, more often than not, the wheels come off. And again, I don't have a massive sample size. This is just my, you know, my take on it. Sure. But yep. more often than not, the wheels come off of, relationships after achieving a major goal like that. Yeah. So I've had more people that I know who, and it's not just lawyers, it's other people in other industries too, Sure. where they thought, you know, once I get this promotion, yep. everything's going to be great. Yep. And you're really just masking some underlying issues that you married the wrong person or whatever's going on that might be irreparable. Sure. And when they achieve that degree of success, the shock of the wheels falling off of their personal life is even more devastating because they had misplaced their, um, you know, their, their trust. So back to the point of, you know, what's a viable business and how can I live comfortably? Everybody's got some number. Yep that would vastly change the quality of their life. Now, that could mean you develop a, a part-time business, uh, let's say it's photography, and let's say you shoot weddings on the mm-hmm. side from your day job, and yep. from that photography business, you generate $35,000 a year. Yep. Which in that industry is not hard to do. Nope. Wedding photographers are compensated very well. Yep. Um, well, you know, that additional $35,000 in income it might mean the difference between vacationing wherever you want to and not. Or, yep. or whatever, you know, whatever the, the change is. And, and my point is that the number that would be do that in people's lives generally is much smaller than they think. Sure. Yeah. No, I 100% agree. So so if people are trying to go out and, you know, to use a baseball analogy, you know, trying to hit home runs every time where they are better off just getting on base, just, you know, get hit a single, get, get, take a walk, get on base and then do that a lot. And if you can do that a lot, the overall quality of life, uh, increases quite a bit. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I I think the other thing that took me a long time to really realize, and it's not always the case, and it really depends kind of geographically, I find sometimes, but 
majority of the wealthy people that I've known that are like truly, truly actually have money don't drive mm -hmm. expensive cars, don't live in these crazy yeah. houses because they're not yeah. good investments. Majority of the people that I know that live in like fancy houses, fancy cars can barely afford to make the minimum payments on it. And I don't mean it mean, yep. it's just you look up to these people and you're like, oh my God, like I, I want your house and I want your car. But if you like dive a bit deeper, it's like they, they barely make the payments, maybe they miss payments or like they're sacrificing in other places where they can't travel because like they're house poor, right? And, and I'm not saying it in a mean way, it's just sometimes people idolize these material goods where, well, like I have one really, really wealthy friend, like it's insane the amount of money they have and his dad drives a Suburban, right? Like he could afford anything on the planet like they have a plane, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Like they have their own private plane. And his dad drives a Suburban and his mom drives like a Ford uh, SUV. Like, and, and it's just because that's just the reality of it, right? And it, it's interesting that we idolize these material things where you, you don't really know what it's truly like for that person that owns it. And I think just the stress of kind of money and keeping up with the, that lifestyle can actually end up end your relationship. Absolutely right. I, I agree a hundred percent. I think one of the greatest, and I, I'm, I am now going to sound like an anarchist. But sure. Bear with me. The, one of the greatest, um, how should we say this? One of the greatest marketing campaigns, that has done more harm than good mm -hmm. in, in American culture is that, um, is that home ownership is the American dream. Whoever sure. came up with that should get some kind of award because it's, it from a, from, I can't imagine another ideal that's more deeply ingrained sure. in people. Once they get married, what's the first thing they do? They buy a house, Yep, which is great. Now, if you're going to, Buying a house for cash, buying real estate is great. Yep. Borrowing money to buy real estate is where the deal turns sour. Sure. I think. Think of another product. Okay. Mm -hmm. Let's say we go to the we go to some store, and there's two products on the shelf. One product is ten dollars. Yep. And we can we can pay cash, and and we can buy that whatever that thing is. We, get it and then product B which is right next to it is also $10 but we only have two and the store goes that's okay we'll give you the eight we'll spot you the eight bucks yep and you're gonna pay us $16 for this thing that really is worth 10 sure so you 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 you're Shoveling cat, and especially people that are in interest only loans, which I suspect is a shocking number, a shockingly high number of people in the US, where you're just shoveling cash into the banking system. Yep. And not creating any real wealth for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got that dynamic happening. And then you've got this other dynamic where, when residential, well, and commercial too, but when residential real estate is bought and sold, you're paying 6% commission on the sale price of the home mm -hmm. for the most part. Mm -hmm. I mean, at least regionally here. Now it's expressed as a percentage of the per, of the total price of the house. However, let's say we, we own a home. It's worth four. It was sold for $400,000. We had, um, you know, we had, uh, 10% equity in it. We only had $40,000 equity in the thing, but the commission is, is, uh, what? $24,000. Sure. So expressed as a, uh, expressed as a percentage of my net on the asset over half of it's going to commission. Sure. And yep. I'm lucky to get out of the transaction with zero, or sometimes you have to pay to leave, which it happens more often than people would think when yep. there's you know, people lose jobs or 
you know, a family law situation happens where there's a divorce and, and, you know, real estate needs to be liquidated. So their home ownership as a concept is fine, but I think you really have to pick and choose your spots. And if you're, you know, if you're, you know, like in my, like in my own case, for example, you know, I choose to rent because I'm in my late forties and I'm not a hundred percent sure in five years, am I going to be in this town or am I going to be, you know, maybe I'll live someplace else. Sure. Yeah. If I tie up all of our cash in a residential property, most of the net is going to get, you know, most of the, the net you're going to build up over the next five years by paying, you know, by paying the mortgage payments, that's not going to be that significant of a gain. Yep. And most of the gain is going to be erased by transactional costs anyway. Yep. So you'd never buy a stock. I mean, you'd never buy any other asset class with that kind of structure to it. It doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense. So, so I think people um, are starting to realize that, it, you know, maybe it isn't the American dream. Maybe there's a better way to do things that will free you up to invest in other opportunities or to, um, you know, just, just to not lose your, <laughs> not lose your shirt. I mean, sure. every, every, every super wealthy person that I've ever worked for as an attorney, they all have one thing in common. Okay. And that thing is they are all private business owners. Interesting. If you have, if you have somebody that is a worker bee at a large corporation, Yep. You know, unless they're unless they're at the top of the organization, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's different. But by and large, you know, the rank and file American worker is not going to build wealth working for somebody else. No. So so encouraging entrepreneurship and startups and new ventures, I think, is really the way to help people on an individual basis and then sort of from a macro standpoint. I just think it's better for society when you have people, more people that are empowered and comfortable with themselves uh, running around versus, uh, you know, versus the opposite. You know what I mean? Totally. I, no, I 100% agree. I, I think it's interesting. I, I also think, too, um, that a lot of generations just can't, the younger generations, like, will never own a home. So, like, like you're almost renting your entire life anyway. Sure, you have a mortgage and you're paying that to the bank, but if you're going to be paying that for the rest of your life, like how is it really different than kind of renting? And it seems like a lot more people are, are kind of moving around kind of not just the country, like the globe, right? So they don't mm -hmm. want to be tied yeah. down and they don't see it as like a kind of a traditional thing that I think older generations were kind of like, you know, I get married, I have buy a house and that's just kind of like how I society sees kind of the average life, right? Where I think nowadays people are like, I don't want to be tied down and I want to travel and I want to do this and I maybe want to eat out more than live in a nice house or maybe I want to just like bike everywhere in this town and I don't even own a car or I just want to take public transit or, or both or I want to like just Uber around if I need a ride. And they were, I read an article the other day that was saying in, in certain cities, just taking Uber made more sense and was way more cost effective when you took take in like car payments and insurance and parking because parking is the big thing that kills you in certain cities, right? It was still cheaper by like half or, or like by three quarters to like just Uber when you needed it in certain cities around the globe, which I thought was quite interesting, right? So I think to your point about actually starting a company and kind of being your own boss, you know, maybe you can make less money, but you're happier. It allows you to kind of travel more. You have more kind of freedom. But but one thing I do want your thoughts on, we talked a bit about earlier, um, is, is kind of copyright. So, you know, I start a business. Obviously, I don't want anybody to kind of rip me off. So how do you kind of see copyright these days because i think it's like an extremely complex issue especially if you're creating something and putting it online or kind of out into the world as the economy continues to transition from you know heavy manufacturing more into the ideas and services space sure intellectual property is 
the new gold rush, I think, you know, Interesting. like people in the 1800s would put, you know, there was a massive rush on for hard assets, gold, silver, sure. that kind of thing. Yep. Later on, it became real estate. And I think real estate's still a great uh, opportunity in in the right circumstance. That's the, that's the key. Sure. Um, but intellectual property is something that people are realizing has tremendous value. And, and IP can be an audience, right? So everyone that's building a YouTube business right now or an Instagram business mm-hmm. or any, any kind of thing like that, what they are really doing is they're building a brand. Sure. You know, I'll subscribe to your YouTube channel because I think you have interesting things to say. Sure. And I want to, and somewhere along the way, I have made a judgment about your credibility or your wit or your, you know, outlook on on life or whatever it is. Now, from the creator standpoint, I'm not building anything. I'm I'm maybe producing videos, so I'm creating something intangible because it only exists out in the air and on the web. Yep. But I'm driving revenue from my ability to aggregate demand. So an advertiser will work with me if I can show them, well, you know, my average piece of content gets 200,000 impressions or a million impressions. Sure. And I'm, you know, the demographic is roughly looks like this, whatever the tools that that YouTube gives you. Yep. And, you have out of thin air created a business. Yep. Um, and, you know, I have a client who is still a minor, so I guess technically her parents are the client, but okay. she, ha- she's, she has a YouTube business and, and generates almost six figures, which at wow. her age is astounding. Well, for and, any age, really, from YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the channel is, and I, so because of confidentiality, yeah, yeah. I cannot... Sure. My client names, um, but in any event, the YouTube channel is something that, if I told you this five years ago, you would have laughed me out of the room. Yep. But the YouTube channel is a shop is a an uh, unboxing channel. So she'll go and buy products. Mm-hmm. She will bring them home. It is shot in her room. One camera. I mean, it's so simple. Sure. One camera, a couple of lights, a good you know, good microphone, and the production is not um, it's it's polished, but it's not overly done. It's not you know there's not some production company behind us. Sure, they do all this stuff themselves. Interesting. And she buys these products, she brings them home, she unboxes them. Could be clothing, could be makeup, could be shoes. Yep. And she gives a review of whatever the thing is. Interesting. If if you had you know if you had been at a you know chamber of commerce event uh, five years ago and said, well, you know there's going to be kids uh, building a business out of their house with no little or no equipment and little or no organization, and it's going to be six figures. You would have been you know you would have been told you were nuts. Yep. But. The, the importance of that is now in that person's situation, they have a brand. There's a logo. Mm-hmm. There's a name. There's a lot of what in the legal community you would call goodwill. There's goodwill associated with those intangible concepts. Now, unless you federally register the logo and you know copyright the content and some other things, you really cannot stop anybody from taking your content and repurposing it. Interesting. So uh, registering your brand with, with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, it's not hard to do. It is a little bit lengthy in that. Sometimes I will tell people, well, you probably should have an attorney for that because it will save you time and money. Ultimately. Sure. Um, and, and copyright is also part of that. So, Um, if you are a songwriter or if you are an author, absolutely. If you're asking yourself, should I register this with the copyright office? 
If you're even asking that question, the answer is yes. Interesting. And okay. here's why. The Copyright Act, the reason it's confusing is that it is a collection of older laws that over time has continued to evolve as Congress reacts to current uh, okay. events. So, Got you. So the original, the original U.S. Copyright Act was written in 1909. Yeah, well before the internet. <laughs> right. I mean, there wasn't even, uh, you know, yeah, fair enough. before radio yeah, fair. was really uh, adopted. So having that as your base, um, you know, is, is interesting. I don't, I don't think that there's any will in Congress to do a global overhaul of the entire system just because of how it would be like trying to throw out the U.S. tax code. Sure. And start over. Sure. I just there are too many vested interests, too many people make money off of the existing system to allow a wholesale change. Sure. Um, but by federally registering your work, whether it's a trademark or a copyright, you get access to these federal statutes. Okay. Um, now Federal registration, and we'll just sort of focus on copyright. Sure. It gives you a lot of remedies that are not available to you under state law. So if I, let's say I've published a book, but I do not uh, protect it under, with the copyright office. Okay. If I see somebody using my material inside of Pennsylvania, I would have to resort to the state courts. Now, this is not a criticism, this is just mechanics. So the state of Pennsylvania does not have a, a robust copyright law that gives me the remedies that the federal law does. The federal law enables you to reach across state lines. So if somebody's doing something in Arizona, but I'm in Pennsylvania, I get access to the federal courts. The U.S. Marshal Service gives you nationwide service of process. Um, if I was in state court, I would not be able to as easily begin a legal action against the infringer and get service and get all of the initial things that need to happen mechanically for a lawsuit to happen. But with the Federal Act, I can send a cease and desist letter to that person. And what the Copyright Act gives me is my actual damages. It gives me a statutory penalty between $750 to $30,000 per use. So someone has, has published something 10 times, that's actually 10 infractions. Okay? Interesting. Okay. Um, and then I get my attorney's fees on top of that. So the violation of the, of the Copyright Act actually has very severe uh, financial penalties attached to it. And for that reason, it's a good, it's a good system. It is, it is actually pro-creator if you take the steps to, to enforce it. And I know that a lot of, you know, a lot of creators are not, you know, there is a perception, let's say, that they don't have the funds to prosecute anything to, to protect their rights. Interesting. And that doesn't always need to be a hurdle. I mean, there are attorneys that I work on a contingent basis with, with these kinds of things, so they're not out of pocket to get started. And the deal is that whatever's recovered would be, you know, I would get a percentage of it. So there are lots of attorneys that work on that basis. Sure. I think it's incumbent on creators to enforce their rights. Once you can't, once you let something slide psychologically, the next time it becomes easier to dismiss. You know, if somebody's doing something. But if I have a YouTube channel and I'm generating six figures or close to it, that's a business worth protecting. If somebody's infringing on my work, I'm going to take steps to stop them because that's the same thing as if we had a store and somebody came in and loaded up their car with products and just walked out and didn't pay for it. Sure. So yeah, it's interesting. You know, you gotta, you gotta think of it in those terms, I think. No, that's 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 fair. 
So you also have a podcast. What do you cover in the podcast and what is it, what is it called? Uh, the podcast is called Creator Confidential. And it is really it was a way for me to just, um, I just had had an itch to do it. And it was kind of moving in the same direction as my law practice. So, you know, I would interview you know, some Grammy winning musicians. And, sure some uh, some arts you know arts and community leaders in my in my little part of the world here and it's just a lot of fun to do I think if you're a musician in particular um, working you know the technical aspects of working on it and mic microphone selection and sure. placement and you know EQing or everything and getting it to sound good is uh, is actually an enjoyable experience but you know in part it was to you know help tell stories sure uh that i thought would be beneficial to people and really the thread that runs through all of the interviews is that the person being interviewed had a professional breakthrough that was somewhat non-conventional interesting so even though even though the guests are from all different kind of sectors that's that's the thread that unifies all the, all the episodes. So it's, um, you know, I, I view it as sort of an adjunct to the law practice sure. uh, in, a, in an odd kind of way because it supports uh, creativity. And, um, you know, it's just uh, I'm in year two of that now, I think. Congrats, and, man. That's great. Couldn't uh, gonna, work on a bunch of uh, those episodes over the summer. Sure. That's great. But Brian, we're, we're coming to the end of the show. So we covered a lot of stuff. So let's close with mentioning where people can get more information about you, the book, the podcast, and, and kind of any other links you want to mention. Oh, well, well thank you. Well, and again, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate your time. Um, of and, course, man. Thank uh, you for doing it. And, and congratulations. By the way, the distribution of, of your show is not easily accomplished i was <laughs> i was on your website and i'm like wow this guy's really really doing it this is great um appreciate it man but you can oh my pleasure the book you can learn there's uh there's a blog that is associated with it and if you go to risk create change.com okay. on the website on the web everything you need to know is right there and it's available on amazon in kindle and paperback formats sure and if you want to learn more about my you know copyright and protecting uh protecting your your intellectual property uh visit me at mycopyrightattorney.com can't be any easier i try to <laughs> try to put awesome. everything down that's great man well i really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show and i look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day Thanks very much. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, man. Me as well. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening. To join the free community, buy some merch, sponsor the show, or sign up for the newsletter, please visit the website at buildingthefutureshow.com. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. And keep building the future.